On WealthTrack, noted global value investor Matthew McLennan on navigating the new era of higher interest rates and inflation. Uh, we probably have one of the higher levels of valuation risk I can remember in my career across many assets. It's hard to dispute that we have what, one of the higher levels of geopolitical risks of the last uh, generation. Uh, we also have the risk of the debt overhang, and it's not just in the United States, uh, it's, it's globally. And then we have the risk of policy credibility being brought into question. So this, this is a risky constellation. First Eagle Global Fund's Matthew McLennan is on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investment Management, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. We appear to be in a new investment era, one of higher inflation and higher interest rates. As these charts from First Eagle Investments illustrate, meaningful inflation has been largely absent in recent decades. Since the early 1980s, we have been living through what's been called the Great Moderation, a long multi-decade stretch of low inflation. That changed dramatically in the past year as the economic dislocations of COVID-19 kicked in. Consumer prices soared to 40-year highs, driven by COVID lockdowns, labor shortages, supply chain disruptions, and record amounts of monetary and fiscal stimulus. In response, the Federal Reserve has pivoted from its unusual role as inflation promoter to its traditional role of inflation fighter, which means higher interest rates ahead. Now, major macro shifts like these are always turbulent. How to navigate them without damaging your portfolio or psyche is our focus today. Our guest is uniquely suited to tackle this challenge. He is Matthew McLennan, a noted global manager, co-head of the global value team at First Eagle Investments, where he oversees more than $90 billion in assets, including several mutual funds. His flagship First Eagle Global Fund is rated four-star by Morningstar with a silver analyst rating for its unique approach, which has helped give the strategy a long-term edge. Since McLennan took over the fund from legendary value investor Jean-Marie Eveillard in 2008, the fund has far outperformed its world allocation category with considerably less volatility than the stock market. First Eagle is a sponsor of WealthTrack, McLennan's track record and reputation speak for themselves. I asked him if he believes we are in a new era of higher inflation and interest rates. Well, we may be in a new era, Consuelo, but the paradox is that we have higher inflation, mid-single-digit inflation, but lower interest rates. And that's the paradox of the moment. And I think the way to interpret, I think, the, what the bond market's saying right now is that the Fed does have to pivot to higher interest rates but it's only gonna be able to raise rates so far, arguably because of the debt overhang in the economy. And that's really what the bond market is trying to price right now. And um, that's an open question because the longer inflation stays at these levels, the higher the risk that expectations adjust up and the bond market is not pricing inflation expectations moving up. We're at a very delicate cuspy moment, uh, one in which the credibility of policy is, is really facing a generational challenge. Talk about the debt overhang and, and how much that figures in to the Fed's thinking, which you know has a, the dual mandate of full employment and also price stability. Well, I don't think they look at the debt overhang explicitly. I uh -huh. think the Fed itself is very focused on financial conditions. 
And what we've seen over the last several economic cycles is that the peak level of debt to GDP, and that is if we combine household debt plus corporate debt plus government debt and look at the total relative to GDP, has been getting higher and higher. And again, this cycle, we're higher than we were before COVID struck. And what that's meant is that over the last several cycles, interest rates have peaked at successively lower levels because the, because the economy has reacted negatively or financial markets have reacted negatively uh, to lower levels of interest rate hikes. The Fed hasn't even really tightened policy yet. We're still in QE. The Fed has mm -hmm. just signaled a more hawkish posture, and that's been enough to create a correction in the stock market. And so the Fed um, is, is going to be attuned to changes in financial conditions. And uh, I think the bond market is relying on that uh, taking care of business, if you will, as opposed to a higher level of interest rates. We're just going to have to wait and see. We've talked in the past about the fact that the Fed has seemed really for the last, I don't know, 10 years or, con or longer constrained by how the markets react. In, in fact, uh, Consuelo, it's been even worse than being constrained on the upside. If you think of the last few cycles, each time we've had an economic crisis, the Fed has had to resort to larger and larger measures of stimulus. First, it was zero interest rates, then zero interest rates plus QE. This last time, zero interest rates plus supersized QE. Uh, the Fed has really um, been asymmetric in its policy response function. And I think that that can't, by definition, persist forever. And so at some point, the credibility of policymakers will come into question. And I think that's the risk that we face at this juncture. You're always concerned about risks at First Eagle. What are the other risks that you're watching? Well, what we'd like to look at uh, when we start out is price, because price is objective. And in some ways, the contours of 2021 were somewhat reminiscent of 1999. Uh, mm -hmm. We had the stock market get to valuation levels that were uh, at generational peaks consistent with the high levels that we saw in the late 1990s. The second thing that we saw last year was not only low interest rates, but generationally low credit spread. So we saw a very low cost of capital. And alongside that, the Fed didn't just succeed in reopening capital markets. Uh, there was a whole host of speculative activity. Uh, we saw um, concept stocks get to record valuations. Uh, in fact, um, the growth universe of stocks um, peaked only towards the end of last year versus the value universe of stocks. We saw IPOs for SPACs uh, and, and new stocks that didn't yet have uh, earnings to speak of or even revenues in some cases. And um, we saw the, the high yield markets wide open for issuance. And so th the second risk I would sort of say that we, we saw last year is that assets were priced for very low risk. And, and that is its own risk. Um, right. I think beyond, beyond that, uh, I think everyone's aware of the, the host of geopolitical risks that we see out there uh, in the world. We've got Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, um, most likely cooperating with each other um, you know, against the U.S., against the West, against democracies. Um, it does seem like a very challenging environment. As a world allocation fund manager, uh, you know, how do you incorporate those challenges uh, in the investment process? I think these threats are one of the reasons we like to own part of our portfolio in a, in a potential hedge like gold, because I believe that the market is underpricing these risks. And um, I, I think that the final thing I'll just mention is that we've spoken a lot about monetary policy today, but the fiscal policy settings that we've seen have been every bit as extreme as the monetary policy settings. We saw double digit fiscal deficits. I think more importantly than that, we saw a second round of fiscal stimulus even after uh, business confidence had recovered. And so 
it's going to be a really big challenge uh, to restore fiscal credibility in the United States, and that's going to be a headwind for many years to come. The fiscal credibility, so who's judging the credibility? Where, where is that going to affect the financial markets? I think you know, we ultimately see credibility expressed in currency markets. Right. What kind of uh, risk are you seeing in the dollar now, for instance? Well, the challenge for the dollar is that it's been strong uh, for the last right. decade. And so the risk for the currency is that it's expensive. We expanded our monetary base more than other developed markets. We have a trade deficit. And the question is, if interest rates don't go up very much, are we going to attract the capital when there's a, an issue of confidence in policy that occurs at some point over the next couple of years. Right. So that's something you've been concerned about for a while, Matt, and it really hasn't happened yet. How real is this risk, and is it something that you know, you're doing something about as a money manager? I think it's difficult to continue as we are because, mm -hmm. uh, as we discussed earlier on, the policy settings in each successive recession uh, have become more and more extreme. Right. And so by definition, I don't think we're on a sustainable long-term path. Our preferred uh, way of addressing these risks is to have a potential hedge in the portfolio, and we express that through the ownership of gold. As you're describing these extremes that you're seeing, uh, has gold become, in your, from your point of view, even more valuable to you uh, in the portfolio? If I step back and I just think about um, the backdrop objectively, uh, we probably have one of the higher levels of valuation risk I can remember in my career across right. many assets. It's hard to dispute that we have what, one of the higher levels of geopolitical risks of the last uh, generation. Uh, we also have, uh, as we discussed earlier on, the risk of the debt overhang, and it's not just in the United States, uh, it's, it's globally. And then we have the risk of policy credibility being brought into question. So this, this is a risky constellation, mm -hmm. even though we're in the midst of what feels like a robust economic recovery. And um, it's for those very re reasons that uh, we want some potential uh, protection against a tail state of the world. And um, it's fair to say that um, gold hasn't really been moving um, much higher to price those risks. In fact, uh, gold has derated uh, since the middle of 2020. Right. Um, and if, if we look at the price of gold, for example, uh, relative to US money supply, M2, or we look at it relative to equities, um, the price of gold has retraced to levels that were uh, consistent with when the Fed was at the peak of its prior tightening cycle, such as uh, Q3 in 2018 or Q2 in 2007. So gold has, uh, in, in a sense, discounted uh, a certain amount of tightening in financial conditions. And I think the question for gold is going to be, what happens next? What happens once the Fed tries to tighten um, and or if any of these risks that we discussed start to surface themselves. So what does happen? <laughs> How do you think gold will respond in, under those conditions? In, in my opinion, um, the Fed is uh, behind the curve. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we, we have 7% inflation. Uh, we're still doing QE. And so uh, one or two things can happen in my mind um, that would constitute tail risk states. One is that we end up repeating the experience of the 1970s, that um, Chairman Powell becomes um, the second generation of uh, uh, Chairman uh, Arthur Burns uh, from the early 1970s, and that we get a period of stagflation. Now, right. uh, during the 1970s, uh, gold uh, performed particularly well. It had its ups and downs, but it did perform particularly well over that decade. 
The other scenario that could play out is that um, the Fed uh, remains committed in a Volcker-like way uh, to uh, restoring its credibility, in which case we might need substantially tighter monetary conditions than what the bond market is currently discounting. I think in that scenario, um, real assets would suffer initially, um, and, and gold could even conceivably go down. But the question is, would it fall by as much as, say, equities if uh -huh. the Fed really jammed on the handbrake at that stage? And uh, we, we think that the value of gold in those tail states of the world could uh, perform reasonably well relative to equities. And because we're primarily an owner of equities, that's valuable to us from a portfolio construction standpoint. And I would just make the final point. There is always the smooth landing uh, scenario. Uh, we'll wait and see. I think that's what the bond markets uh, and asset markets are pricing right now. And I, I wish them luck. Matt, Morningstar describes First Eagle's approach as unique, giving it a long-term edge. Aside from your holdings in gold, which is a trademark of First Eagle, uh, what else are you doing that's different from the world allocation funds? So at our, at our core, Consuelo, is the notion that we would like to create resilient wealth uh, over the long term. And um, when we talk about gold, and we've, we've given a lot of focus to it today, um, we right. need to put it in the context um, that it's a minority of our portfolio. It, it exists as a potential hedge. And the path to resilient wealth creation for us is primarily through the ownership of businesses that embody some kind of scarcity value. Uh, and, and where we plant seeds, we invest, uh, and, and we hold for the long term. Our average turnover is quite low. Uh, we're nearly decade um, uh, horizon investors when we buy into businesses. We really aim to grind it out over time. Uh, we want to grow wealth uh, relative to nominal GDP, uh, but we want to do so um, in, in a way where we have an eye to what can go wrong, so that when we have the inevitable crises along the way, our clients have the staying power to endure that and benefit from long-term compounding. You just mentioned kind of scarce and durable assets. So can you name a couple of companies that represent those scarce and durable assets that are in your portfolio now that you've held for a long time? Yes, so if you look at our largest equity holding, it's a company called Oracle. Uh, they're mm -hmm. the uh, world leader in relational databases and their business is transforming uh, to cloud delivery. So they're annuitizing their business. Um, the rate of growth in their business is also accelerating as they're going through that transition. Uh, and it speaks to the fact that not only do they have this sticky, stable market share position, but it's priced um, in a way that uh, the arithmetic works. Uh, the company today uh, has a free cash flow yield, uh, arguably north of 6%. Uh, and so you get the benefit of mid-single-digit growth, a 6% free cash flow yield, and a steady business over time. If I look around the world, uh, we look for a, a range of different kinds of businesses. For example, the largest uh, business that we own in our overseas portfolio is a, a company called Richemont. Uh, we used to own Tiffany's. It got acquired by LVMH. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to own uh, a leading jewelry maison, you have to look internationally. And uh, Richemont is the holding company that owns Cartier and Van Cleef. They also own uh, IWC uh, watches and Piaget. All of these brands are more than a century old. So that's, that's an example of business duration. And the company trades at a discount uh, to the valuation that LVMH paid when it acquired Tiffany's. Prudent management, another quality that you look for. And I know that you frequently invest in companies that are run by founders or founding families. Can you give us some examples of those? 
Well, interestingly enough, the last two companies we just discussed right. ha have founder billionaires at the helm, basically. And so, yes, they do. Um, you know, and I think it's particularly important at this point in time. You know, I described a macro environment to you that could be very uncertain in the next right. five to ten years. And you know, what matters to us is knowing that there's management at the helm of these companies that have a track record of not just wealth creation but adaptive behavior. And so, investing alongside a founder, I think, is a good way to make sure that uh, you know, your capital, that f the free cash flow that's being generated by those businesses is gonna be thoughtfully stewarded over time and that capital structures uh, will be robust. In fact, uh, if you look at Richemont, it essentially has close to no net debt. Uh, so it's very conservatively capitalized. Your value investors uh, looking for that, that margin of safety uh, and considering how expensive the US market uh, is, where are you finding those margins of safety? Where are you finding good value uh, in the world today? So last year, prudence was not particularly rewarded. And as you suggested, no. um, the U.S. was at the epicenter of that. It's a dominant part of the, the, the benchmark and uh, the MSCI world. And it and it's, uh, was also the, the, the hub of growth stock investing. Um, so I think if, you, if you're looking to diversify and, and look for some opportunities elsewhere that may be less in favor, uh, you know, I, I would focus on some of the Asian markets, for example. And in fact, uh, Japan has been quite weak uh, in, in resonance with what was a bear market in China last year. Mm -hmm. And not only is the currency weak and potentially attractive, as we discussed earlier on, but a, a range of different companies are valued very conservatively. So if I look at our largest uh, stable type businesses in Japan, companies like Seacom, which has over 50% market share in commercial alarm systems, or Mitsubishi Estate, which owns a third of the square footage in the Marunouchi, the prime CBD real estate in Japan. Uh, these companies trade at very modest valuations. And so there are businesses uh, in other parts of the world that own special assets or market position, and they may also be in currencies that are quite depressed relative to history. So should we be looking overseas? Is that where you're, you think the, the values are? Look, we've found value in the United States. We own a right. range of uh, U.S. listed companies that we think are attractive to own for the next decade. But I think it would be remiss uh, of an investor to ignore the opportunity set overseas. The fact that the United States equity markets, nearly 70% of the MSCI world, tells you that the average investor is actually not that diversified. Uh -huh. And so I think now is probably a prudent time uh, to, um, to consider some element of diversification because uh, Many of currencies internationally are quite depressed relative to the dollar. It's not a call on where they go in the next 12 months, but if you're going to be an owner for the next decade, that's a good starting point. Secondly, the uh, valuations of markets outside the United States are quite a bit cheaper than the U.S. equity market. And if you're selective, you have the ability to find companies that are either control special assets or are run uh, by talented management teams. I just want to go back to gold because when you're when you're talking about your gold holdings, you're, you don't just own the bullion, but you also own the gold miners. Are there gold, you know, mining companies that uh, that one you know would consider to be, uh, you know, sustainable and responsible and environmentally friendly? When one thinks of a mining business, one doesn't naturally think of uh, something that's uh, sustainable in inverted commas, but. Uh, right. When you step back and you really think about um, this industry, this is an industry that's actually been around for literally thousands of years. So there are very few industries that have shown the persistence of this industry. I think the second thing that's critical is that 
If you look at the large leading gold miners, uh, whether they're royalty companies or they're miners, they have to operate in all kinds of jurisdictions around the world. Right. Social license is incredibly important. And I think the most talented management teams in the gold mining universe devote a, a huge amount of their energies towards finding the right balance uh, between the local communities they operate in and um, the economics of the mines that they're running. And so you, you, you can't be a good miner without social license. Finally, from an environmental uh, and safety standpoint, a good mine is a safe mine, and your social license is invariably tied up with the environmental footprint of how you mine. And so I, I would say that many of these companies are far more thoughtful uh, than you would think on these variables. And, and which company has done particularly well among the gold miners? One of our largest holdings in the space is a company called Barrick, uh, run by Mark Bristow, who's got an incredible track record of creating value in the gold industry. And um, you know he inherited a range of social license issues, but I think if you look at their actions over the last couple of years, they've made meaningful progress uh, on, on all of those issues. And I think it's a good example of uh, someone trying to do right. Uh, they've also set a very clear roadmap to carbon mitigation over time. They take this seriously, and they, they believe it, it makes very good economic sense. It will position them on the right side of the cost curve long term. ExxonMobil is also one of your largest holdings. So how do you view uh, the energy and oil industry in particular um, and those companies, both from an investment uh, point of view and, and also from a sustainability point of view? So the fossil fuel industry has been the poster child for a pariah industry uh, you know, during the past few years. There's, right. there's no question about that. Having said that, um, you know, one has to, to think at a second order level. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, there is a, uh, a roadmap underway for people to transition the auto fleet um, to electric vehicles over time. But one can't f lose sight of the fact that there are certain applications for which dense and portable energy still is going to require oil for a very long time. And um, the reality is that the field decline rate in this industry that's been a prior industry and where there's been substantial underinvestment, not just because of the ESG taint, but because of the low prices during the COVID crisis, has meant that there's been insufficient um, investment to sustain field life relative to the pace of transition. So these companies need to exist. And as you're thinking about investing as a portfolio manager, a real risk um, that you have to deal with is the price of the world's most consumed commodity going up a lot because of underinvestment. And right. so there's a role for energy in a portfolio as a potential hedge. Meanwhile, what's going on at these companies is that they're arguably part of the solution. Exxon is a world leader in carbon capture technology, for example, and it's doing a, a lot of research into alternative fuels, such as algae. They have new mm -hmm. directors on the board uh, who bring uh, environmental change pedigree uh, to the company, and uh, the company trades at a very undemanding valuation. So I, the thing I'd like to get across here is that when you're thinking about ESG, if I could give you an analogy, think of the world of credit investing. You make money in credit investing by finding a credit that's getting better over time. Uh, in the world of um, ESG investing, it's our belief as a value investor mm -hmm. that um, ESG improvers could be a source of real investment opportunity. It's not just the history and the historical taint of a business that makes sense. It's what are management doing to improve the situation. Matt, uh, we always ask the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Is there something we should all own some of? I think a lot of the conversation today has centered around the, the importance of diversification in a moment like this. I think diversification is a key principle. 
if you, if you want to own a technology company like Oracle, why not consider some tech leaders internationally like Fanukin Robotics or Taiwan Semi in semiconductor foundry equipment? If you want to own a consumer staple in the United States like a Procter & Gamble, why not consider a Unilever internationally that's under an activist attack right now at a third less of the valuation? Uh, we've given a number of examples today of the ability to buy good businesses at reasonable prices outside the United States. And I think now's the time to think about that uh, from a long-term portfolio planning standpoint. Matt McLennan, always a treat to talk to you and always appreciate your very thoughtful conversations as well. Thanks, Matt. Thank you so much. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is add some inflation beneficiaries to your portfolio. As just discussed, with few exceptions, gold has held its value. It also serves as a hedge against disaster. Owning the bullion through an ETF makes it more accessible. The Spider Gold Shares ETF, symbol GLD, is the oldest. Other traditional inflation plays include a variety of commodities. A broad-based commodity ETF is the iShares S&P GSCI Commodity Index Trust, symbol GSG. Real estate is another traditional choice. Real estate investment trusts or REITs offer shares in pools of income-producing properties. The Vanguard Real Estate ETF, symbol VNQ, provides low-cost exposure to a broad range of REITs. And finally, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, or TIPS, are U.S. Treasury bonds indexed to inflation. You can buy them directly from the government or through an ETF like the iShares TIPS bond ETF, symbol TIP. Now, most of these investments have been out of favor for years, so they are under-owned by most investors. This is a good time to diversify into some inflation beneficiaries for the years ahead. Well, next week, the bullish case for the market from influential economist Ed Yardeni. In this week's extra feature, Matt McLennan looks to the future with a book recommendation. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. We so appreciate your spending time with us. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.